Hello, everyone. It's Eves checking in here to let you know that you're going to be hearing two different events in history in this episode, one from me and one from Tracy V. Wilson. They're both good, if I do say so myself. On with the show. Welcome to this day in history class from HowStuffWorks.com and from the desk of Stuff You Missed in History Class. It's the show where we explore the past one day at a time with a quick look at what happened today in history. Hello and welcome to the podcast. I'm Tracy V. Wilson and it's December 8th. Christina of Sweden was born on this day in 1626 in the old-style Julian calendar and in the new-style Gregorian calendar that was December 18th. Her parents were King Gustav II Adolf and Maria Eleonora of Brandenburg. They were the king and queen of Sweden. And her father had grown very concerned about whether he would have an heir. Before Christina was born, her parents had been through two stillbirths and the death of an infant daughter. There were other people close to the line of succession who had plenty of heirs, so this was cause for concern. When Christina was born, slightly premature and in a call, the midwives announced that the king had a son. And it wasn't until the following day, after a lot of celebration of the birth of a long-awaited heir, that the midwives finally admitted that they had made a mistake and that they should have said Christina was a girl. This has led to some speculation about whether Christina was intersex or whether her body was just ambiguous or whether it was a matter of poor lighting and the midwives seeing what they really wanted to see. Everyone really, really wanted a son. Regardless, though, the king decided to raise Christina as a prince. He warmed up to the idea of having a daughter, but he raised her in many ways as a son. As she grew up, this suited her just fine. She was not very fond of the things that women were expected to do during the day. And her father wanted her to learn to ride and fight and handle a bow, and she did all of that. Not only that, she did it really well. She really enjoyed it. Her demeanor was just not at all what people thought of as feminine. So it wasn't all that uncommon for royal girls to have the same education as their brothers and their male cousins, but it was pretty uncommon for them to have been as excited about fighting and hunting and whatnot as Christina was. When Christina was five, though, her father died, and her mother, whose behavior and emotional state had become increasingly erratic, took her away from her home and the cousins that she'd been living with, where she had been pretty happy until that point. Even though she was the only daughter of the late king, Christina's ascension to the throne had to be approved by parliament, which was known as the Riksdag. They ultimately did approve, and by the age of 14, she was attending council meetings. She became queen at 18, although her formal coronation wasn't until she was 23. By the time of her coronation, though, she was already thinking about abdicating. She had pulled some strings to get a cousin named as her successor, insisting that she had no desire to marry. It was the same cousin that everyone wanted her to marry. And she did finally abdicate and move to Rome and converted to Catholicism. She seems to have had some second thoughts about this abdication later on, though. She tried and failed to take over the throne of Poland-Lithuania, she hoped to become the Queen of Sweden again after that successor she'd had named suddenly died at a young age, but none of that worked out. Christina wasn't ever known as a particularly good ruler. I mean, she did decide to abdicate, 
before she was even crowned. But she was an extremely learned woman. She spoke multiple languages, including, of course, Swedish, plus Greek, Latin, German, French, Flemish, Italian, Spanish, and Finnish, with also a little Hebrew and Arabic. She helped start the first Swedish newspaper in 1645, as well as Sweden's first public opera house and its first universal public school program. She collected a huge amount of art and literature. Her collection of books and manuscripts later on became part of the Vatican Library. So even though she was maybe not the greatest as a queen or a king, depending on how you wanted to look at it, she did other stuff pretty well, and she died in 1689 at the age of 62. You can learn more about her in the October 20th, 2014 episode of Stuff You Missed in History Class. Thanks to Casey Pegram and Chandler Mays for their audio work on the show. You can subscribe to the Stay in History Class on Apple Podcasts, Google Podcasts, the iHeartRadio app, and wherever else you get a podcast. Tune in tomorrow for the establishment of a state. Hey, y'all. I'm Eves. Welcome to This Day in History class, a show where we one day ship nuggets of history straight to your brain through your ear hole. The day was December 8th, 1864. French sculptor Camille Claudel was born in Fair Un Tardinois, France. A lot of emphasis has been placed on her relationship with sculptor Auguste Rodin, but Claudel herself was a prolific and acclaimed artist. Claudel was the oldest of three children, born to Louis Athenaise Servo Claudel and Louis Prosper Claudel. They weren't rich, but they moved from time to time because her father was a civil servant and they lived comfortably. They stayed for a while in Villeneuve Sofer, in Bar-le-Duc, and in Nujan Sassin. Claudel took an interest in art early on, and while her mother was not too fond for her love of art, her father supported her. So did her brother, who became a noted poet and playwright. As a child, Claudel created clay-modeled portraits of her family members. While the family lived in Nujan Sassin, Claudel's artwork attracted the attention of prominent sculptor Alfred Boucher. Boucher advised her father to encourage her art and enroll her in an art academy. Around 1881, Claudel, her mother, and her siblings moved to Paris, while her father stayed behind for work. In Paris, she continued to train as a sculptor. Only men could attend the École des Beaux-Arts, a prestigious art school in Paris, but there were private academies that allowed women to attend. Claudel began attending the Colorosi Academy, where she met her lifelong friend, Jessie Lipscomb. The first sculptures that Claudel completed at Colorosi are her earliest surviving works. Boucher mentored Claudel while she was in Paris, and he visited Claudel in Lipscomb's studio to advise them. Boucher soon left for Italy, but before he left, he asked Auguste Rodin to take his place and tutor his protégés. By that time, Rodin was not yet considered a master, but was a celebrated sculptor. Claudel and Rodin then began a complicated, years-long relationship in which Claudel became Rodin's assistant, model, collaborator, and lover. Under Rodin's mentorship, she was able to study the nude figure and anatomy. While Claudel continued to produce her own artwork, she also contributed to many of Rodin's sculptures. 
Rodin's assistants, including Clodel, were integral in shaping Rodin's reputation as a prolific artist. Many art historians suggest that Rodin and Clodel influenced each other's artwork. The pair's romantic and professional relationship lasted for more than a decade. But their relationship began to fall apart when Rodin refused to leave Rose Barret, the mother of his child whom he lived with. Letters Clodel wrote showed her resentment of Rodin and Barret. Still, she was productive, and her art was recognized in the 1890s. She exhibited sculptures at celebrated salons and in galleries. But in the early 1900s, Claudel destroyed a lot of the art she worked obsessively to create. Even though she had some support from art critics, she became more isolated in her studio and struggled with money. She also grew obsessive about Rodin's indiscretions. After her father died in 1913, her brother Paul had her admitted to an asylum near Paris. And the next year, she was transferred to a different asylum. For the last few decades of her life, Claudel remained in the asylum. She gave up sculpting, and even though doctors recommended she be released, her family wanted her to stay in the institution. She died while hospitalized in 1943 and was buried in a mass grave at the asylum. Though a lot of her work was destroyed and her artistic success overshadowed by her relationship with Rodin, many of her sculptures and drawings survive and are celebrated for their dynamism and portrayal of emotion. I'm Eve Jeffcoat, and hopefully you know a little more about history today than you did yesterday. If you have any burning questions or comments, you can leave us a note at TDIHC Podcast on Twitter, Facebook, or Instagram. And you can send your thoughts or comments to us at thisday at iheartmedia.com. Thanks again for listening. We'll see you same place tomorrow.